Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ support. For the month of April, St. Evans will be donating to Welcome to Chinatown, a grassroots initiative that is supporting and amplifying community voices to preserve one of New York City's most vibrant neighborhoods. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women-of-color-run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where saint evens. Shop Vintage 
do good, and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that used to dream of getting married on The Price is Right. That's right. I was in about third grade when I told my family that I would only ever get married if it happened on The Price is Right, which was a thing that could happen back then at least. Uh, spoiler, things worked out a little differently, but you know, if only I could travel back in time. That's the first thing I would do. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 70. Today I'll be joined by Rebecca, the owner behind small batch ethical clothing brand Flux Bene. Rebecca lives in Pittsburgh. She's friends with a lot of other Pittsburgh guests we've had on the pod, and she is just so lovely to talk to. Like a mesmerizing voice. <laughs> We'll be talking about the importance of upcycling, uh, gender and clothing, and Rebecca will even give you some tips and ideas for customizing your own clothes and giving them new life. So it's quite a conversation. It's really good, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Anyway, before that, Jenny of Late to the Party, a.k.a. The Estate Sale Queen will be joining me to talk about the ultimate capitalist game show and Rainbow's psychedelic good time, The Price is Right. It was so fun to record that conversation. <laughs> you won't be hearing too much from me in this episode outside of the conversations, but I promise I'll be picking up the pillars of capitalism on Sunday's episode. I received my second vaccine dose two days ago, which I'm incredibly excited about, but I did not feel well, which I did not feel excited about. <laughs> I just could not get my head together to write a script about the freedom of capitalism. And trust me, there is so much I want to discuss there. So that will be coming on the next episode. Also today, I just had a mega bummer experience. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it because it just really hurt me and I don't know, maybe one of you has had a similar experience. Maybe you'll be able to relate to this. You know, 
As most of you know, I lost my job at the beginning of the pandemic. First, I was furloughed for four months, and that meant I had constant anxiety, like crippling, nauseating anxiety. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't enjoy life. I mostly laid on the couch and felt really freaked out and and shitty, too, <laughs> for, as a bonus. Finally, I was laid off officially in the middle of the summer, just a couple weeks before my birthday. My role, my job had been, quote, eliminated, meaning they weren't going to have someone with my job title in the company. You know, they had to make cuts. It was hard times. Of course, a couple weeks later, the company, you know, filled the internet with press releases about how they had made a surprise $34 million in profit for that quarter, which, whew, I had a lot of feelings about that. Anyway, uh, (laughs) later I found out that I was the only person laid off from the brand. So it felt super hurtful, super humiliating because I was one of the original employees of the brand. My performance was great. I had hired and trained everyone on my team. I had brought in all the brands that worked with us. I'd worked to create most of the processes I used. In general, I worked really hard and did my best every single day. It hurt. I felt like I couldn't say that to people, that I had to just be like, well, it's the pandemic, it's for a good reason, or whatever, I didn't like that job anyway. I had to constantly put on a brave face for everyone, but the truth was, it really fucking hurt. It made me feel terrible. Today, I got a dumb push notification from LinkedIn, and seriously, Why would I ever pay attention to a LinkedIn alert? Because it's never good. At best, it's annoying. And at worst, someone who treated you poorly got a mega promotion and it makes you feel like a failure. But LinkedIn just wants you to know. Well, I took a look at this LinkedIn alert because Justin and I were simultaneously dealing with a very stressful situation with my external hard drive. You know, the one that has more than 100 podcast episodes on it, as well as all of the images and all this other work I've ever done for social media for Close Horse. All the videos, all the graphics, everything I've done for the blog, just like a whole year of work on one little plastic thing. So it's a pretty big deal to get it working again. And we were both like really stressed out. Like, honestly, I think Dustin was maybe more stressed out than me, uh, which, you know, really touches me, actually. (laughs) He's he's the best partner. But I thought, okay, I'll just click on this dumb alert to distract myself from how stressful this moment is. And I found out that someone with literally 10% of the work experience I have in fashion and buying had been promoted into my previously, quote, eliminated position. And it just hurt so bad. It's not that person's fault, right? It's the job's fault. It felt like being slapped in the face. In a capitalist economy, swimming in a sea of gross hustle culture, it's hard to disconnect your job from your identity. When you lose your job, you feel terrible, you feel lost, you feel like a failure. It's hard to go on. Separate the financial fretting that comes along with it The blow to your self-esteem is brutal. I've coped with these feelings for the past year, even as I've worked on Clothes Horse, and Clothes Horse has brought me an incredible amount of comfort and distraction and 
excitement about the future and validated a lot of things for me and has been an amazing project to work on actually in the midst of all of this. But I've also been working my way through a lot of trauma that I experienced at that very job. It feels funny. It feels frustrating, infuriating to feel hurt by being rejected by something that wasn't great for you in the first place, that didn't align with your own values and ethics, that didn't feel satisfying to you. But that's where I am. I've touched on this in the past, and I'm just going to say it again. In the fashion and retail industry, all workers are disposable. You know, you already know, that the industry feels that way about the garment workers, the warehouse workers, the retail workers. But the industry feels that way about everyone who works for them, regardless of title or skills, commitment, contribution, talent. Everyone is disposable. doesn't matter how loyal you've been, how much money you've made that company, how much hard work you've put in, the sacrifices you made to be there and help them, the things you missed out on. It will always be profits over people. Maybe I got let go because I was too expensive and they wanted to fill my job with someone cheaper. That's totally possible. Maybe they didn't like that I was expressing my concerns about some of the stuff I saw going on. That's also possible. Maybe they didn't think I was pretty or on brand or excited enough. That's all possible too. Maybe I wasn't posting enough about my job on Instagram, but like, sorry, I refuse to do that. My work didn't matter. My family didn't matter. No one worried about how we might make it through the pandemic now that my health insurance had been cut off and I had been given the tiniest severance. Everyone who was involved in that decision to lay me off knew that I wasn't finding a job anytime soon and that this would have a major impact on me and my family. And, and it did. They didn't think of me as a person. I was numbers in a spreadsheet, disposable at any moment. That's what happens when you prioritize profits over people. I started today sad, but at least the hard drive was fixed. And actually the backup plan is to go buy an enormous like tank of a hard drive that I secondly, secondarily, is that what the, I would add? Is that the adverb there? I don't know. But I will back up everything a second time on it, lock it away on my desk, and it will be safe. There will always be a backup. That's a good feeling, right? <laughs> so I started the day sad, even after the hard drive was rescued. I began to realize as the day passed that my commitment to creating change, to holding the industry accountable, to getting more people involved in our movement and continuing to educate them, I saw my commitment to all of this grow and grow just in the space of one afternoon. People are not disposable, and neither is our planet, its creatures, the trees, the water. And I want to work as hard as possible to help others see how what they buy directly reinforces this ugly idea of disposability. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep working. <laughs> you know, thanks for listening to me talk about that. I know it's very personal, but... People always ask me what's driving me to make clothes horse, to work so hard. And that's what it is. I want the world to be better. I want all of us to do better because we know better. 
and I want to, I want things to be better for everyone going forward. All of the people on this planet, and it can't be, it will not be better if we don't change what we're doing right now. And as individuals, the individual changes we make, they're not big enough. We need to force the big companies to change their ways. And interestingly, that starts with us. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be our responsibility. But this is the world we've inherited. And we can't sit around and say, well, it's too big of a problem. I can't make a difference. I'm just going to pretend otherwise. And I'm going to ignore it. And I'm going to go out to brunch. And I'm going to go shopping at Fashion Nova. We can't do that. The time is now. And I hope I hope that you're in it with me. And I'm guessing you are because you're here right now. <laughs> If you're interested in supporting my work on Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. That's my personal Instagram if you ever want to follow me. Thank you to all of you who already support me. So many amazing people that I would have never met had I not lost my job due to a global pandemic. What a strange thing to say. I'm so grateful for all of your support, whether it's with money or by recommending the podcast to others, sharing our content on Instagram, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm so grateful for all of it. Thank you so much for listening and giving me your constant support. As I mentioned earlier, Jenny, the estate sale queen, is here today for the first of a recurring monthly series where we'll talk about how pop culture reflects the theme of the month. We don't have a Zazzy name for this recurring segment yet, so if you have suggestions, send them our way, but you know it has to be Zazzy. Lots of pizzazz, lots of jazz. Send it our way. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about The Price is Right, which is the ultimate capitalist game show. Spoiler, I love it. So does Jenny. So let's just jump right in. Jenny, Everyone here knows you. Why don't you introduce yourself to everyone who might have forgotten you? I There's no way they did. I guess it's just for the new so people. So unforgettable. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am Jenny. I uh, run a small um, brand called Late to the Party. Some of you have um, definitely have seen me on the pod or heard me on the pod before. Um, also been tagged the estate sale queen. Um, you know, uh, that's like my side gig. Uh, so yeah, I'm really excited to be here and talk about The Price is Right. Which I am so excited about because would have never thought I would be saying this in 2021, but Dustin and I have been really into watching Prices Right recently. Um, but I also mega fan when I was a kid, like For loved sure. this show so much. But you can watch it now. Um, we have a Roku and there's a channel and app for Roku called Pluto. And they have a channel that is only The Price is Right. Mm-hmm. 24 hours a day and it's like early 80s episodes it's the bob barker years to be precise. yes thank you yeah and actually the- you're the one so i had major surgery in january and i was kind of looking for you know i've l- watched so many shows i was looking for like just something to have on while i was like just dealing with my you know just like a comfort thing mm-hmm. and you had actually mentioned oh pluto has all these old like 70s and 80s like tv shows they do have ads so you have to like 
be on board for that. And the but, ads are bad. And yeah, they're horrible. But you yeah. know, it, it, it makes it feel more authentic. Like you're actually back in like the, the 80s, like watching yeah. with, with, <laughs> with bad commercials. Um, so I was like, okay. So I put on, I was like, uh, yeah, I watched a bunch, but Price is Right was one that we just kind of had on in the background a lot. And it was the Bob Barker years, you know, the best years because the I don't, years. I don't, yeah. I don't fuck with Drew Carey and that uh, That's what I said to Dustin. I was like, I will watch an episode with Drew Carey over my dead body. And yeah. he was like, what's not to love about Drew Carey? No. And I'm like, no. There was only one host of Price is Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, as we'll get into, there were so many, like, special things about that show beyond, you know, just the, like, the format of the show, which is what's the only thread, basically, of, like, what, you know, Drew Carey did. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, like, for me, too, uh, which we'll talk about, like, the the aesthetics of the 70s and early Uh. 80s of that show were unbelievable on so many levels and like as you go into the drew carry which i have to look i'm not sure the exact date but maybe that's like nine 90s or i don't even know when bob barker retired i have to look that up um we can do a quick fact check but when it yeah. got into the drew carry years it just everything became sterile nothing had that same charm it just aesthetically was like garbage to me you know it's like the way all of aesthetics went in some ways with that but so i was just like yeah i'm not interested in that yeah, yeah. It says here the internet tells me that Drew Carey has been doing it since 2007. Oh, okay. So Bob Barker was around for a minute. Yeah, I mean, I mean more than yeah, a <laughs> like a really long time. Yeah, he uh, was. Looked good steadily. In the early mid 80s, I mean, he's, he was like an older gentleman then. So, yeah, know. and he was dyeing his hair. And that is the one thing. I think that hair dye technology has changed a lot since mm, that era more natural now. because his hair looks terrible. Yeah. And I actually <laughs> read, I was reading a couple fun facts um, about Price is Right. And I did read that once he went gray again, so they had like a little bit of a lull. Once he went gray, the, the, sh- the rating shut up. Stop. <laughs> I, they were like, I mean, he, he's a silver fox, man. Yeah, totally, I get it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so another little fun fact that I was, um, reading about so it's the longest running game show 40 wow almost 49 50 years at this point i think which i thought was kind of crazy yeah it doesn't get old it really doesn't and i was thinking about it you know and so there apparently there was the early 70s um where they start you know when it started it had a different host so bob barker was not the original host and it was black and white it wasn't that exciting it was kind of like more of the traditional of how game shows had been at that time um and then when so that didn't wasn't like wildly successful. They switched it up, and Bob Barker became the um, the host, and the whole aesthetic of the show changed. Because I was actually being like obviously a you know a, an art nerd and in, especially interiors and like set design. I love that stuff. I was like, who is responsible for all of this? You know, um, so I did look up, and there was a guy named Ted. Cooper. I will double check that. Um, and he, yeah, Ted Cooper. Um, and he was in charge of all the set design and he was basically like, um, uh, responsible for sort of like changing the whole aesthetics of game shows from like this kind of just one single curtain kind of black and white and and then like changing it into this like whole extravaganza, like for the visual, like eye. um, so he, he worked for the, um, Mark Goodson productions, which is like the production company that did mm. all those shows mm-hmm. like all the big ones um price is right match game you know hollywood squares like all that stuff and that was like sort of like the heyday sort of like late 70s early 80s of that like kind of like visual game show mm-hmm. so i was just mm-hmm. like i just wanted to know about that because i really have i mean ever since i was a kid i'd stay home from school when i was sick and i just like the aesthetics of price is right 
were so cool because they were like, it was like a carnival. You know what I mean? Like, it was. You were like, what? So rainbow. Yes. Just color everywhere, like fully saturated, the full rainbow. Yes. Very flashy. Yes. Um, the game designs are incredible. Like I what a dream job it must have been to create those games. Oh my god. And and it was very DIY still, which is what I l- kind of loved about it. Like I I took a lot of screenshots when I was re- you know, recovering from surgery and watching prices right and I and I took a lot of screenshots of like some of the actual games and the things that they built for the show because they're mm-hmm. very DIY. I mean, they're hand painted. It looks like, you know, things like foam core and cardboard and things that mm-hmm. were like built mm-hmm. with a glue gun and like some, you know, hammers and nails. It was not like this very stare aesthetic like we talk about the drew carey years that like yeah yeah like no plastic and yeah it's it's a very different um overall feeling which of course i super identify with and like shaped my childhood little brain i think (laughs) yeah i mean we we upon rewatching, you can see the texture of what the games are made of uh definitely lots of foam core there for sure And you can see how sometimes things that look automated are clearly a person standing behind it doing yeah. something. <laughs> and there's definitely moments that Barb Barker's like, well, I guess that thing won't move. You know, it's like something's supposed to move and it doesn't. And it's just like. You know, yeah. Yeah. There was one where they were doing like, I think it's safe crackers where you have to like guess the three digit price of something that's inside the safe. Oh, and right. then like you know, they spin the thing and it opens and then the door wouldn't open at all. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oops. And they have to have like one of the ladies come over and like rip yeah, it open or something. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. A lot of like spoof moments. But I mean, on, yeah. on, on top of all that too, like with a lot of the showcase showdowns or like the trips, oftentimes instead of, obviously they don't have a physical thing to show with the, the trips you could win. So they would pull in like a huge mural of like, yeah. they were actually really beautiful. And they would just like have these hand painted murals that would come into play all the time. So it was just like, a, it was a more art. I mean, in my opinion, it was a lot more artful and just like visually interesting than a lot of the stuff we see today with like just computer stuff and whatever. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It is like so visually stunning. As an adult, I appreciate it even more than I did when I was a Me kid. Too. And like I I loved that show. So I have a question for yeah. you. What is your favorite game on Price oh, is Right? Favorite game. I think I think I would go Plinko. Yeah, I knew you were gonna say Plinko. Did you? I, it's like when I was a kid, I would dream of getting the opportunity to play Plinko. Oh, so much fun. And at one point, we had some sort of, like, wooden peg toy. Like, it was like a board, and you would stick, like, me- like wooden pegs in it. I think you're supposed to use, like, blocks or something. My brother and I would try to play Plinko with it. Totally. Well, it's funny, because I watched... And also, I just... I'm obsessed with the visual of Plinko. So it's this for people who haven't seen, which, of course, you're all going to go Google these images when we get off. Google Plinko. You have to. So it's it's so weird. Board. The name does not explain what it is at yeah, all. Yeah, it's very, it's very strange. And I love that everything's just luck. So it's a huge board that's just, like, lifted up, and there's a staircase going up to the top of it. And so you basically get these round, uh, like, discs... And it's basically like a peg, a giant pegboard. And you stand at the top of the giant pegboard and you drop the disc in and it kind of like the pegs sort of knock the disc around. And at the bottom is all the prizes you can win, the money prizes you can win. And so, mm-hmm. but of course, I mean, there had to have been some theory behind building that where like, because everyone, you know, you'll start on the left side, you'll start in the middle, you'll start on the right. And it's like where your chip ends up is very random. And then just visually, it's awesome. It's like this, like, kind of almost like pastel sunburst of colors. And it's just, you know, it's very carnival. Like, you know, you're at like a some sort of seaside carnival. On, on, yeah, on yeah it's, got, 
It's got to be rigged, but it's very exciting. Yeah. And it kind of takes a while to play. Yeah. And like a lot of the games, like the thing about Price is Right is like, yes, there's the Plinko part of Plinko, but there's the other part of Plinko that actually makes the money for the Price is Right, which is where you have to guess the prices of various items. Oh, right. And th they do a little description of each item that is basically like a mini commercial. Mm -hmm. And so those companies pay to have their products you know shown on prices right like that's where the real money comes absolutely. from absolutely yeah and uh that is really fascinating to me because there are so many re-watching it so many products that i remember mm. like jiffy pop popcorn you know like things that are like in your or jolly time i think it's actually jolly, jolly time, time right are, yeah uh that you are like oh yeah i remember hearing about that all the time you know um and it'll be like a mixture of groceries and like kitchen appliances and I don't know. They have a lot of lamps on there. A lot of clocks. Too. A lot of clocks. <laughs> Even, so I watched it with my partner and we were laughing because he'd be like, oh, great, a fucking clock. Like, who wants that? You know, or just like something like arbitrary. Like, yeah, like, it's pretty <laughs> weird. So basically, if you've never seen Price is Right before, which blows my mind and you need to go watch it right now. I'm sure it's on YouTube also. I know the music is because we've been playing it off of YouTube. Um you know, they pick random people to come down front for the showcase, not the showcase, but it's just like contestants yes, row. Right, and it's yeah. like, what, seven people? Does that sound right? Yeah, I think it's about seven-ish. Yeah, seven or eight. So they bring out an item. It's often a clock, a set of lamps, maybe a trash compactor. I love yeah. when it comes out on the train, actually, because the train makes this sound that's like, whoo, Yeah, and it's woo. like coming into station. Like, it's all Yeah, thrilling. it's like a sexy train. Sexy it's very train, flirty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and sexy little product train. <laughs> Yeah, everybody will bid on it. And the person who's the closest to the actual prize without going over will come up on stage. So they win that prize. Next, they're going to play a game, right? It might be Plinko. It could be, I will have to say, there are a few games that if I got on Prices Right, I would just like leave. One of them is the, um, what is the one? It's the yodeling one. The, yeah, with the mountain climber. Mountain climber? <laughs> yeah, that's very stressful. No, I told Dustin, I was like, no one ever wins that. Really no hard. one ever wins that. And it's like a game where you guess the prices of things and for every dollar you're off the mountain climber goes off the hill up the mountain and then eventually he falls off and you lose and everyone always loses i would not want to have the golf game oh yeah that sucks too it's like putt putt yeah, yeah it's like putt putt but like in front of like a thousand people or something <laughs> yeah, no pressure. and basically you 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 have to uh guess the price of these different items usually like grocery items and with each one that you're correct, you get closer and closer to the hole. And when you finally get one wrong, that's where you have to putt from. So the goal is to get as many right as possible. And even still, if you're not an avid putt putter, you're not going to win the prize. Like you're not going to get a hole in one there, right? Yeah, I think that's also rigged. I think so too. I think uh, so also, too. quick side notes, contestants row is four people. We're all with. Four? Really? Yeah. Wow. It seems like so many people. I know, okay, not that well. many people. A lot of personal. Yeah, wow, yes. wow. I mean, I guess it would, it would take twice as long because they would have to take all those bids. Yeah. Um. So you go up and you play this game, and like some of them are really terrible. There's this one, the check game, that no one ever seems to understand. Yeah, that one's weird. Uh, that one's really <laughs> weird, right? And like certain games are just like kind of unwinnable, yeah. while others, if you it's are so pretty knowledgeable about the price of things, you could probably win. But then there are the ones where you would have to both know the price of something and have luck on your side. Yeah. So it, it, it like gets harder and harder. Um, whether you win that game or not, you go to spin the wheel. Yeah. And 
it's like hearing myself describe this show out out loud. It's like so crazy. It has so many insanity. Yeah. Sections, right? You spin this giant wheel with all these different numbers on it. And your goal is to get the highest number on it without going over $1. And if you get $1 or is it five and 50? Yeah. Then you get to, you win an additional cash prize and you get to spin again. And if you get $1 a second time, you get $1,000, I believe. If you, no, if you land on the, if you land on it once, you get, a, you get a thousand. Oh, you get 10,000 if you do it a 10, second time? if you do a double. Yeah. Dang. That is a lot of money. I'm okay, sure. so yeah. Whoever has the highest bid without going over a dollar goes on to the showcase showdown, which is at the end of the episode. And this is like kind of other than Plinko, like the best yeah. part because they show all these like wild prize packages, which I'll say as an adult, most of them are really stupid. There's always <laughs> one that is mostly a dining room right. with carpet and the dishes. Right. <laughs> I will say this. I will interject for one second about, about the showcase showdown because this is something that I was I was always so pumped as a kid to watch because oh my god, me too. They would have most of the time, even if they're like sometimes they're just like oh, is it basically a dinette set with some chairs and some dishes and a couple lamps and something basic like that. But a lot of times there's themes, so it'll yes, be like the second one always has a theme. Yeah, it's always like this bomb ass <laughs> thing. Like the second one is we're traveling back to outer space and people will dress up in like costumes, <laughs> and it's like a whole yes. rigmarole of like craziness. And so those were always my favorite. I, I actually saw a couple of them that were not as often, but like this one was like a theme of like a little kid's room and all the women that were on the show, the Barker's Beauties, which is, as we know now, problematic. But um, yeah, you know, um, <laughs> but like these women who were like doing the show and they would dress up and it would be like, it was like this kid's room theme. And it was like, they painted these murals of these giant raggedy ands and like building block. It was very like, Alice in Wonderland spooky crazy. You know what I mean? Like it, the themes were my favorite because they just like oh, set designs sure. and the stuff and the costumes. One was like about a mime traveling around and yes. it was all about trips. They bring the mime back a lot. Yeah, they love a mime. That was an early 80s thing. Holly is always the mime. They did one, which I've now been able to see twice in rerun, uh, that mm. is based on 9 to 5. And they oh, even yeah. use the music from nine to five. I think I saw that one too. And it ends with them all throwing a pie at their boss. <laughs> who is, what's his name? Who does the calling? Yeah. Johnny. Yeah. Right. Johnny. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's like always so good, but I realized that if you take a step back out of the themes and you look at the stuff that you win the prizes in the themes, they're always yeah. super weird and like not it's that very good. ludicrous. It'll like, be like, it was a fucking sailboat. You yeah. Know what it's I mean? always like, like a sailboat, a trip to China and an air conditioner. <laughs> and you're like, wow. Or like a dune buggy and <laughs> like, and a waterbed. <laughs> you're like, whoa, that's like a guy <laughs> right there. They did have like an exercise bike and a water bed. I think. Yeah, once. there's a lot of water beds on there. Oh, uh, so I feel funny. like it's a lot of stuff you would never buy yours for yourself because right. inevitably there's a catamaran, which is a type of yeah. sailboat, and the right. woman building bidding on the catamaran is about exactly. seventy and <laughs> lives totally. in the Midwest. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, she like is from Michigan. Maybe well, maybe by, by a lake though, it makes sense. But yeah, she's like seventy five. Landlocked. Can, she yeah. Up the stairs. She's yeah, like, yeah. I want a catamaran. There was one that was like, it was like cleaning out grandma's garage and in it was like a rocking chair and <laughs> like, I don't know, like a stove. Wait, that was the theme? Cleaning yeah. out grandma's garage? Yeah. And oh, they were, and they had one of the, one of the beauties was there wearing like an, a grandma outfit and wig. And right. 
they lifted up a blanket and there was grandpa on a rocking chair. Like <laughs> the rocking chair was like a recliner or whatever. The final get the final prize was so stupid. Like it made me angry. And it was like a like I, like a I don't know, like a recreation, a reissue of like a classic like model T car like truck thing that like i don't even know if you can drive it on a road but that (laughs) showcase ended up being worth more than like twenty thousand dollars yeah they have a lot of rvs yeah yeah Yeah. for sure um well also the show just um the the cars because david my partner was always like these cars are all lemons because obviously the show is fueled on product product placement right Right, i mean we're here talking about capitalism too it's like this is like the prime of like you know down from like your jiffy pop or your you know stuffing or your jujubes to like you know cars and you know washer washers and dryers and like dinette sets and like stuff that's like more expensive but all the cars not one of them was a major like uh u.s made it was no no ford no chevy none of those it was all like cars i've never heard of before you know so it was kind of funny because and they all end up being sort of like lemons and side note fun fact if anyone has been interested or watched um the lady and the dale it just uh oh. which is a yes a, i just watched it recently oh yeah that was um the dale was on price is right uh which kind of shows you it's like all these like kind of weird startup cars i guess and stuff um which was a aside just like a really awesome story about this this car and the person who created it and whatnot but lady in the dale so the the dale was on uh, a late 70s episode of price is right too but yeah there's all these like kind of off brand yeah. things. <laughs> yeah some of them were i mean obviously the food stuff but even still i'm kind of like oh i never even heard of that there's a lot of that there's a lot of brands you've never heard of. Like, like I've noticed uh, they have like appliances or like electronics on there. It's if it's a brand I recognize, it's a brand I recognize as being like a brand you got at Kmart that wasn't as good. You know what I mean? Like there's never like a Sony television. I mean, maybe now it's different, but like, yeah, the appliances even like you wouldn't see like Whirlpool or something on there. It'd be something else, you know, some other brand that's, and I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? Whirlpool doesn't need to like advertise necessarily in that way, but maybe like startup brands or off brands that need more of a push. Yeah. Would be like, yeah, we'll donate, you know, a year's worth of cornbread stuffing for this, you know, so people like get to know the name of it. I mean, it's not a bad idea if you are an advertiser <laughs> to put it on the prices, right? Cause then, you know, people start noticing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it make it makes sense. The food is usually recognizable, although sometimes I'm like, maybe back then it wasn't. Like, there's always like a lot of Nissen cup of noodle, and I think about yeah. how probably in the '80s, like that was a difficult sell to people because it seemed weird, right? And, like international or something. Subi honey is another oh, one. That's another like- one. And honey was exotic in the '80s, right? That was not like an everyday staple that everyone has. Yeah. Now. Yeah. There's yeah, always sure. a lot of antacid on there too, like weird stomach medicine <laughs> yeah, I that mean, I have I never heard of. The <laughs> older generation that's on. But I will say the as re-watching this um, kind of more on the topic of like who was on the prices, right? Um, you know, as a kid, I didn't even know. I mean, I didn't even notice that. But now as an adult, I'm like, it was a real cross section of people. You know, there was like older people yet college kids there was like i mean all sorts of everyone every ethnicity every like because people talk about it they get up there and they're like oh i'm from blah 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 and this is my deal you know they kind of like people are chatting about it a little bit mm-hmm. um so i was really kind of like this is a real cross session of like kind of like everyday americans you know what i mean and it was fascinating to me as an adult to sit and watch how like fucking psyched everybody was i mean so psyched to be like on that crying. show crying 
crying, like thrilled beyond belief. And I did find out that, so you wait in line. So the whole process to get in as a contestant is you come the day of, you wait outside. Um, there's a huge long line. You know, people probably wait for hours, whatever. There is some guy that when you get there, he does a quick test with you. Like, kind of like, give me what you got or whatever for like a minute. And you're like, hi, I'm Jenny. I'm from Brooklyn. And you like do your like spiel. And if he, if he thinks that you have like high energy and you're like, you're positive and you're like, kind of could be funny, you're definitely in. So there's a slight screening process of people with like high energy and that like had a fun time spirit or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, that makes sense because everyone that comes on there, no one's in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. No one's quiet or shy. I mean, for the most part, everybody's like pumped, ready to party, ready to win some shit. They're so psyched about it. I mean, it's like winning this car. I've seen people lose their goddamn minds on the show. Just like... And I'm like, wow, this car is going to make or break Mary Jane's life. And I am so pumped for her and I want her to win this car. You know what mm-hmm, I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just like this level of enthusiasm that I feel like we don't even see nowadays. No, you know? no, we've lost that simple joy. The simple joy. Pontiac. Really t- totally. I mean, I, have, I mean, even though it's obviously in its core, totally about capitalism and money and just things, right? Which mm-hmm. in sense, we're like, who cares about things? But the reality is, is like, you know, for working class people too, especially it's like, those things are a huge fucking deal. Like having a car was not just like a given for everybody. So or the a dinette that set where everything matched. Yeah. Yeah. Like anything like dishwasher, dryers, yeah. like just like everyday shit that's expensive, you know? Yeah. And you're like, and I think that there was something, there was something sort of like weirdly, like not innocent about it, but just this like simplicity of like how excited this person would be to like win this thing that could potentially like really improve the quality of their life. You know what I mean? And so there's something about that, that even though it's like about capitalism and about (laughs) bullshit, there is something that's sort of like, like, I I mean, David and I found this this winter just being like, come on, girl, you got this, like being so excited for these people. because too. I get really emotionally involved. (laughs) I do too. I want like Mary Jane to win the washer dryer because she fucking needs it, man. You know? Yeah, yeah. Or the um, people who are like, I just got married and now we want a car. Like right. this is amazing, you know? And totally. I mean, you feel excited for them, but then you learn then it goes bad. <laughs> yeah. So I just recently learned this. Like when we st- we started to get really serious about prices, right? About in I would say in December, which culminated like really peaked on Christmas Day when they ran Christmas episodes all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was if you think the Price is Right is already not like fabulous and glorious, watch some Christmas episodes. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and I was like, you know, I wonder what the deal is with like do you have i mean you know me i'm gonna have to think about the dark side sure what i was like do you have to pay taxes on the stuff that you Mm. win and Mm. that was when i started to develop a lot of anxiety about prices Mm -hmm. right after reading about it so do you want to break the bad news to everyone i'll break the bad news so um yeah so basically if you win say a showcase showdown right which has a boat, a, a motorcycle, a trip to Tokyo, whatever, whatever you claim at the end of that. And you can't cherry pick. I also found that out. Yeah, so it's if, all or nothing. Yeah. So if you win the showcase shout out, you can't just be like, oh, I don't want the boat because I live in, you know, in the middle of <laughs> and Iowa. I'm 70. Or yeah. And I'm 75 <laughs> and I'm never going to get on a fucking boat. Um, <laughs> you can't say that. You, you can't just take the trip. You have to take it all. And you do have to pay taxes on all of that. So 
especially with the with the the products that were like things like a boat or whatever that's hard for people. I mean, those things are super expensive. You're talking about like 30, 40 grand, 15 grand, whatever. And paying taxes on that, uh, you know, is just not feasible. So a lot of people I think had to not claim their prizes. Yes. Because the thing is the taxes are half the value of it. Right. And you have to pay that money before you can actually receive the prize. Right. And this is my question. And I don't know about this part of it because I didn't, I got a little upset like depressed when I heard that at first. So I was like, oh, it just like made me bummed out because like Price is Right was this like a little gem of like something like sparkly. And now I feel like there was like a tarnish on it. However, do you think that was their long game? And like they knew that they were having like everyday people who don't necessarily, they're not like having like, it's not like a billionaire's club where everyone's just like, it's like, you know, regular people in the world that don't have, you know, 20 grand sitting around or 10 grand or five grand right, or whatever. Right. You think yeah. that that was part of their like, oh, well, you know, we get all these prizes in and we won't have to, well, we can redo that prize in a month because that person's not going to claim it. Do you think I, they thought about that stuff or do you think it was just like, just part of the thing and they were like, whatever? I mean, I, I hate to be that guy, but I think that they knew that. They knew um, maybe that. they yeah. did it right out of the gate, right? But as, probably, it go, as it goes on, yes. yeah, you have to know, right? Because, yeah. um, you know, we're talking some major money here and you sign – basically, I was doing some deeper reading about it and you – as soon as you come off stage after you've won anything, you sign a paper saying that you you are aware that you will not – receive this item until you can cough up the 50% tax rate on it. And I Why is there why was there a 50% tax rate? That seems outrageous. It has something to do with it being California. And it being like a gift or yes, something like that. Yes. Yeah. Um and so it's more highly taxable. Uh I think you the part that was confusing to me is I don't know if you'd write the check to the cast to the prices right or to like the state of California. Maybe Maybe you pay the prices right and they pay the state. I'm not really sure, but yeah. like you, it's not like you can be like, okay, cool, thanks for this like form. When I file my taxes later this year, I'll sort it all out. It's not like that. I right. mean, I knew you had to pay taxes on prizes, but I didn't realize it was like instantly. That's so deep. I did yeah, some comparative too. reading about people who go on Jeopardy and win money. Oh. And yes, that is taxable at the same rate, but they're just like, oh, you want $20,000? Here's a check for $10,000. You're good. Well, that's no. what I'm saying with the cash. So your best case scenario on Price is Right is to win cash. Because even if you win 10 grand, okay, so then you win five. Okay, that's still good. You don't have to, just, you know, you don't have to like, you can just spin Yeah, it off. exactly, exactly. It seems like that's the best. And so I was reading some really sad stories about people who were like, uh, like there was one, I think I, I told you about this, a guy won the, the showcase showdown. I mean, he won a ton of prizes. Obviously, you can't be like, I'll just take the stuff from the showcase or I'll just take that clock from earlier. It's all or nothing, like we said. And right. one of the prizes in the showdown was a trip to New Orleans. Well, this guy lived in New Orleans and he was like, I don't need a trip to a place I live. And they were like, oh, well, you have to pay the taxes on it anyway. So he didn't right. take any of the prizes. Uh, I also read about a woman, though. This is like a more encouraging story. So she went in there more recently in the Drew Carey era. She won a catamaran, of course. Uh, she won a car. They're still doing catamarans. They're still doing catamarans, yeah. Catamaran, and I think she got a car and something else. And so she was like, okay, well, I actually was in a really good situation where I had been saving money to start my own business. So I was able to pay the taxes, and I sold the car 
and the mm. catamaran. And I actually made enough money to start my own food truck. And I have like a business now. Awesome. I mean, that's what I would think that if people had enough to cover the taxes, they could essentially, he could sell the trip to, I mean, that's a little harder thing to sell, but or yeah. just sell a car or sell whatever you don't want, the, the boat. And that would like make sense. But you have to be kind of a savvy, I mean, a little bit like have the money up front and also be able to work that out before like Craigslist. And yeah, stuff. that's what I'm you know? thinking. Like, I think if you won that trip to New Orleans now, you could you could sell it on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or something. Like, I think there's more options there. But also, like, right. you know, the people on The Price is Right tend to be a little bit older maybe. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I thought that that was here. really, really interesting. And I do – when you start really binging The Price is Right, <laughs> uh, which I've been known to do this year. I uh, recommend it. You see the same prizes coming back, specifically yeah. – the cars. The yeah. same cars keep coming back. And I know that all of those prizes, like the Price is Right doesn't pay for those. Those are provided yeah. by Pontiac or whatever. And like, it's always like not good cars. Yeah. The lemons. <laughs> They're the lemons. Yeah. yeah. They're always like, you see the same car coming out again and again. And I know the other thing is like, when you win the car on the Price is Right, they're not like, here, oh, do you have the tax money? Okay, here are the keys. Drive it home. Like, that's not what happens. Uh, even the woman who won the car and the catamaran and sold it, she was like, no, after I settled the financial commitment, uh, I went to the dealership in Vegas and they had it for me. Oh, so, okay. So you don't necessarily get the one that's on the stage. But I do think that probably when they are approaching Pontiac or Whirlpool or the people who make the dinette sets, they're like, listen – probably only 50% of these are actually going to be given away. So like, right. you know, we can theoretically then it's not going to be that much of a commitment to you cost wise to provide these prizes. I'm right. sure it'll they do sell that. two times and we'll show at six or whatever the number. Yeah, is. exactly. Exactly. And so the payoff, you know, having worked in the fashion industry for a long time and seen the way we would use data to lure people in or lure people out. Uh, right. My guess is that after a certain point, at least now in the Drew Carey era of Price is Right, Price is Right is probably putting together statistics that they go to car companies and appliance companies. And they're like, listen, you know, we've seen like if your product appears on our show, your sales go up 400% and we, you only end up having to give away 10% of the times we show it or, you know, like right. they probably know all they that now. You can probably do that across the board, even for someone who's showing like Poland spring seltzer or like whatever. Yeah. I mean, eating. I bet it's expensive to get your Jolly Time popcorn on there. Oh yeah, for sure. Now. Or all those Tootsie Rolls. It was always Tootsie Rolls. Ugh, so many Tootsie Rolls. Not, not aspirational. <laughs> And it was, yeah, you're right. It was like it was like stuff that was kind of gross, like gravy, lot lots of, of gravy packets and jars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There mm -hmm. was like some gross stuff on there. Yeah, for uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, even just on like again, my obsession of like weird, awkward, like '70s aesthetic. Um, I was screenshotting a ton of stuff because I originally thought I might do a post, but we ended up talking about this instead. And I and I was like screenshotting all these like really awkward like. Hormel chili. It would oh just my be God. like be a so thing much chili. chili. And it was just like always like a yellow bat. It was just very janky. Even the way that they shot the product, it was very like low budge style. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it didn't make it look cute. It wasn't like with other things. It was just like a can of fucking chili with like the price in front of it, like no frills, you know? Which <laughs> yeah, I kind of love. Yeah. I love how like just like simple and like not like precious it was. Yeah, yeah. It might be like seriously a slow cooker rolled out on a cart and like yeah. a model like gesturing towards it. And I love how we thought like that was so necessary. I mean, obviously the the Barker's Beauties um 
came out and they had a function on the show besides just looking beautiful to like do functional things like drive the car out or, you know, wheel the cart out or like stuff like that. Run the train. Um, right, run, get on the, the sexy choo-choo, the sexy product train and like roll it through. But I love how like when they talk about the product, I still am like fascinated. As a kid, I was just like, I just, this visual is so stuck in my head of like, them just having really pretty nails and then just like going back and forth like they're gently caressing the thing always like, oh, no matter why, what why it is, is. necessary like why <laughs> do they have to like slowly tickle the pot, the crock pot to like make it more appealing it's you know such an 80s thing right like or like Super. there's a dishwasher they have to like gesture all around it and then like slowly open it and right. close it or like th- <laughs> i remember they did that with a trash compactor once and i was dying yeah. <laughs> um you know or if it's like a clock they're just like ch- gesturing just like around it just like with the nails like softly yes yeah um, and i will say like i uh, you know i have noticed now that this they have the same barker's beauties for decades which is yes. pretty cool and that there's a lot more personality being shown than i'd ever expected or noticed when i was a kid like i think for me the barker's beauties were just like set dressing and now yeah. that i'm like much more sensitized to the fact that there is this group of professional women being called barker's beauties on yeah. the show uh i'm like a little bit more in tune with them and they are like really funny and they yes. say funny things and they do a hilarious job on all of those ridiculous showcase themes and yeah just being having to be like ridiculously dressed and like yeah and they wear some crazy stuff like the costuming for them is on point and I just I just love it I actually am like what an amazingly talented group of women also (laughs) well a little I don't know a ton about all this but there was there was three major um beauties from the decades that I really watched and remembered like kind of Barker years I know it was Janet Mm -hmm. and maybe even or was it Janice or Janet no Janet Janice Yes. And Holly, because Holly, Holly was always the mime. She's a brunette, and that's how you yes. like remember her. And what was the other? <sighs> There's another blonde one. Yeah, I have to look up her name. But um, and the three of them were on the show for, I mean, at least 25 years for you know something in that yeah. zone. But I, I will say, and I didn't, I didn't get heavily into it. I did, I just kind of like, I was doing some like light fact checking. She did bring up a lawsuit against Barker. Yes. The end. Well, they were involved somehow. Yes, they had some sort of like intimate involvement. I don't know the details about it. If it was just like a casual thing, or uh, or they dated, or whatever. I don't. I don't really know. I didn't go that deep into it, but I did watch a, a little short um, snippet video that she did, um, and it's kind of unfortunate because she really talks about how it was a great place to work for a long time. You mm-hmm. know, they were like these mo- these beautiful women that were models, and they got to work in this really fun environment. It was like always exciting. And this is also in the day before reality television when this started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, before like reality television really came out. So it was like, it was a very exciting, thrilling place to work, you know, and you have like a live audience, you never know what's going to happen. They would dress up in all these costumes. So they really had a lot of good things to say about um, the show. But towards the end, I think there was issues about, um, you know, Holly had gained some weight. I mean, I don't know if she had a baby. I'm not sure exactly the details or she was, had some health problems and she gained weight and, and they didn't like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's what it seemed to be the, the, the sort of very basic, um, uh, kind of issue there. And then some, some inappropriate behavior with Barker. I don't know the extent of it. Um, but she sued them. Uh, I think she won some money. I think I she remember. did. Yeah. Yeah. She won't say yeah. how much it was like undisclosed, but, um, so it was unfortunate that that sort of like had to go out on that tip towards the end. But, um, but they, they all did say that they really had an amazing fun time. And I actually watched one show where they were all like tipsy. 
because they had like a holiday party and they were like i mean unless he was totally kidding but i don't think he was i think they had had a holiday party earlier in the day weird and they were just like a little bit drunk it was like a christmas episode or something i was like oh wow um so it was yeah but um, yeah, I uh, I was just looking this up. So Janice was the longest serving model in the show's history, 28 years, right. which is like wow. not a thing that happens when you're a model. So Right. That's pretty long. Yeah. Um, Diane is the one, the other Diane. blonde, without an E, D-I-A-N, yes. Diane Parkinson, and she was on until 1993. Right. Um, there have been other people since then, but nobody was around as long. And obviously they seem to still have, you know, models on there or whatever but i mean i think for for people who were kids in the 80s you know all of these faces so well and they make you think of being home during summer vacation or homesick and like they're burned into your consciousness uh i don't know bob barker personally i i I hope that terrible stuff doesn't come out about him uh and destroys another like father well, I guess more of a grandfather figure from right, my childhood. Yeah. Um, I loved at the end how he would always be like, uh, help control the pet population, have your pet spayed or neutered. Yeah, PETA um, did some kind of, um, I, I forget, they did something, they named something after him, like a wing or, you know, something along the He was a big animal rights advocate. I think actually Bob Barker is like the reason I got really into animal rights, I think. Oh, really? So, oh, that's yeah, funny. yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, you always yeah. heard it at the end. Like yeah, it really dogs and yeah. I remember having conversations with people in my family and being like, Have you had your pet spayed or neutered? Is your dog spayed or neutered? Like <laughs> before I knew exactly what it meant. <laughs> um yeah, I uh Bob Barker's still alive. Did you know that? Is he? I thought yeah. he passed away. I liked his vibe on the show because listen, I mean, we all know who's anyone who's ever like worked a customer service job or like with the public it's a lot, you know, it's like, he's got people. Yeah. There's women. I mean, people were like so obsessive and crazy about the show. There'd be, I always love the ones where people dressed up with like shirts that said something funny and like, you know, so they'd come oh, down. Like, I love, I love the Bob Barker. Yeah. You know, the 70s style, like, you know, they'd get like the iron on letters and stuff. And, you know, he always handled stuff pretty well. And he was kind of like, but he also like, you know, he was, he was very like, gracious about things but he also like was kind of snippy in a good way where he'd move yeah. people along and be a little bit sarcastic and funny which i thought was yeah kind of he handled it really well he was really good off the cuff actually yeah. i would make me laugh like he's funnier than i remembered him being yes. he is 97 years old and still alive wow. and still alive yeah wow. yeah pretty wild right I mean, he really kept himself up though he had he worked forever I mean, mm-hmm. that goes to show, too, when you, like, keep your brain going. And, and he also, I feel like, was in fairly good shape. He's in L.A., too. He was, like, a successful Hollywood person. One, I think he's, like, vegan. So, oh, okay. So, you know, for a long time, at least vegetarian. Um, He always had those amazing outfits by Botany 500. Oh, my God. His, yeah. Those, some the of those suits, suits were just oh, really killer. So good. Now, I'm not an outfit repeater. I'll tell you not that. Not an outfit repeater. No. So he <laughs> loses points on that. But he didn't, they didn't know about, they didn't get it then. They didn't know. No. Those suits were all polyester, though. But also, I will say, I'm also a huge fan of when I watch stuff because you know we watch i'm definitely a nerd about um decade aesthetics right like i love Mm -hmm. watching things that like really capture aesthetics of certain decades and things and it's but 
you know, when they do movies and stuff, there's always like, if they're not actual documentaries, you're kind of like, oh, sometimes it's off. But watching something like The Price is Right was such a slice of like American life, you know, uh, and just, like, what people were wearing. Totally. People obviously like dressed a little bit up, but like coming in like their regular, just like life clothes, some people, you know, mm-hmm. so seeing mm-hmm. the fashion on that shit. I mean, if you're even into like, any kind of late seventies, early eighties fashion of like just like regular life fashion, I would definitely suggest just checking out the um, audience for that because it was just I was like, oh my god, it was just so good. I took so many shots of like hairstyles, glasses, and not like cartoonies, just like real how people were really dressing at the time. Actually, there are a lot of people in there that if you drop them off in like. Brooklyn or Portland a few years ago, like 10 years ago, they just would have been hipsters. Totally. Uh, every once in a while, there'll be a woman on there and we'll be like, oh, remember when she was in that Electro Clash group? <laughs> well, <laughs> or the of celebrities, um, Jesse from Breaking Bad was I on know. There. Did and you watch lost. that clip? Yes. And oh he lost. God. He lost. But the hilarious thing is, okay, so he's a baby. However, I will say this. He's jacked the fuck up. Yeah. He is pumped like super psyched and he's very on brand like his like i might be a meth dealer vibe or something yeah you know it's kind of weird the- actually because i the first time i saw it i thought it was like actual weird like cross marketing viral nonsense right for, like a, yeah. for breaking bad but no I think that's just how he, is. how he is. Yeah. Like he might be an ecstasy dealer. I don't know. He's a little weird. It's amazing. And so he was just like yelling the whole he's like, Bob Barker. It was like yelling the whole time. It was kind of hilarious. And then he gets all the way through the show to the showcase showdown, which is like the finale, right? And the lead, so the whole deal too with the showcase is if if the person that you're standing next to the other person competing goes over, you you automatically win, no matter what you're unless you went over too. Right. That was which happens deal. sometimes. Sometimes there'll be a double over. Well, that's what happened. So this lady went over and then he was like, oh, and he was only over by like $130 yeah, or something like so that. It was close. like a tiny bit, which was crazy. And so he was so bummed No out. catamaran was, for him. No catamaran for Jesse. But I mean, talk about being on brand. Jesus. I know. I he know. Just like very much cast. I mean, now he's like older and more mature, but he definitely can see where he came from. Oh, my God. Like I now I wonder if in Breaking Bad, he was wearing his own clothes. Totally. Or they saw him on The Price is Right and they're like, that this guy, guy, this is the yeah, guy. That was his real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his real had his clip from Price is Right. <laughs> well, Jenny, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me about Price is Right. What a delight. Yeah, I hope everybody else enjoys this as much as I did. <laughs> <laughs> and go check it out. I would love to give us, give a call over to the podcast if you have any other like hilarious little snips about Price is Right. Yes. Once and, you get in there, you're going to be, it's going to be fun. And tell us what game yeah. is your nightmare to have to play? <laughs> I definitely want to hear everyone's opinions and, and and also just like the rewatch, you know, if you're someone who did watch it and then watching it all these years later, it's fun to watch do stuff like that because you just like have a different perspective. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. I want to hear all about it. All right. Well, thanks well, for having me, Amanda. It's awesome as always. Thank you. Always. Always come back again. Oh, I will. That was so much fun. Actually, like, uh, it just like totally transformed my mood listening to that today. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Jenny and I really want you to see some images that she grabbed from all of her prices right viewing because even if you have seen this stuff before, seeing it with fresh new 2021 eyes, it 
It's amazing. <laughs> so please go check them out in her stories on her Instagram account at late to the party people. She has informed me that she will be saving it in her stories highlights so you can find them there. And Jenny and I have something super exciting planned for next month for labor month. So I can't wait for all of you to hear that. As a reminder, I want to hear from all of you for labor month. I want to hear about your experiences in your jobs, the good, the bad, the weird. And I want to talk about the things that bug you about your job, what you think could be better, how your job makes you feel, even how you balance your personal identity with your work identity. And I don't care what your job is. I'm not just looking for fashion jobs here. I want to hear about all the jobs. I bet everyone listening wants to hear about all the jobs too. So please reach out. You can call the Clothes Horse Hotline. You can send me a recorded voice memo using your phone or your computer, or we can have a short conversation. So reach out. All right. Well, it's time for all of you to meet Rebecca of Flux Benet. I enjoy this conversation so much. Rebecca is so thoughtful and inspiring, and I can't wait to hang out with her IRL. And you're going to feel the same way. So let's just jump right in. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, my name is Rebecca Joy. I'm a textile artist in Pittsburgh, and I have a company called Flex Bene. We make clothing and accessories for everyone out of upcycled materials. So upcycling is kind of the driving force behind Flex Bene, right? It is, yeah. You know, we see and hear the word upcycle, upcycling thrown around a lot on social media. I think there's a lot of confusion about what that means. <laughs> <laughs> How do you define it under the lens of your business and what you do? So when I say upcycling um, in terms of Flex Bene, I am talking about using items that already exist. So we take clothing that has been produced previously and worn previously and remake it completely into new garments. Um, we're also using second market fabric. And when I say that, what I mean is fabric from places like Fab Scrap and from other designers mm -hmm. who have excess. So not necessarily dead stock fabric, um, which can be bought new, but fabric that um, I'm buying from the person who bought it new. <laughs> Repurposing. Yeah. <laughs> and why are you so passionate about you know, using repurposed upcycled materials for your work? Honestly, it's because there's a lot of it. I look around and I see so much <laughs> material and so much clothing. And that's just where the excitement is for me. Um, the idea, it's just kind of a rush, I guess, to take something that, <laughs> this is how I party, <laughs> basically. Um, <laughs> to take something that doesn't have value as it is, and then to add value to it, that's just simply what excites me. I mean, that sounds pretty fun to me. Way more fun than a party. <laughs> I haven't been to a party for a long time, though, so it's like really hard for me to say, but uh, I remember them being really awkward most of the time. Anyway, I think... Yeah, fabric's never awkward. <laughs> I think that upcycling is interesting when you think about it in terms of capitalism, because kind of the 
you know, the point of capitalism, the operating mechanism there is to constantly sell you new stuff, right? And that means also creating new stuff. I think a lot about, uh, man, some of the deep dive I've been doing into plastic packaging recently. It's basically like in the middle of the last century, all the factories were churning out as much stuff all the time. You know, it was like a real economic boom time, but it was kind of like, okay, we've reached the maximum amount of stuff that we can sell people. What are other ways that we could make money and build businesses? And it was like, oh yeah, by making lots of disposable packaging, right? Like that's that's how capitalism works. It's like, how can we kind of like use the most energy and resources to make things to sell? It, it's so depressing, yes. right? But upcycling seems to fly in the face of that. Yeah, absolutely. It is an anti-capitalist act for sure. Creating something yourself, I think, is anti-capitalist. And if you can do that by using things that you already have, that's just like double. <laughs> um, it's a double win. It really is. It is because it's like, yeah, sewing for yourself is definitely an anti-capitalist act, but it's slightly less so if you go to Joanne and buy all the fabric there in the first place and like all the newest everything for it. It's got a revolutionary vibe to make it out of something that already exists. And we know there's like so much stuff that already exists. Upcycling seems to be a hot button topic the past couple years, maybe even in the past decade. But you were saying that actually this idea of upcycling has been around for a really long time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is an example of that trick capitalism has of taking something away from you and then later selling it back to you, <laughs> packaging it and selling it back. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the term upcycling, I, I think is fairly new, but the concept is ancient. It's just something humans have always done. And an example I thought of is the feed sack dresses. That was in the late 19th century through the mid 20th century, food goods, so like flour, sugar, um, grain, they were sold in sacks that were specifically intended for sewing projects. So when your flour was gone, you would use that sack, maybe combine it with some other sacks and make a dress. And that was how people lived. And I have a a book. It's um, a vintage sewing book. I'm obsessed with all of them. And it has a section in it. It's just called Sewing Smart. And that's all it is. It's um, tips for using things that you already have. So that's what it used to be called. Before upcycling, there was Sewing Smart. <laughs> I actually really like that name because I think also upcycling is is confusing. You know, people think, is upcycling dead stock fabrics? Sort of, but not really because that fabric was still intended to be cre to create something, right? But if you go to like, you know, the Goodwill and you buy a set of curtains and turn that into a blouse, that's upcycling because you're taking something and sort of upping the ante and the usefulness of it, especially if it was something that was going to go to the landfill in the first place. So I like the idea of sewing smart, of like finding maximum use in the things around you. I mean, and that, you know, that kind of applies to everything. We have a lot of really weird stuff going on in our house, in our constant drive to, you know, not waste anything. Like we built garden beds out of some abandoned pallets that we found, you know, and it was hard, yeah. you know, <laughs> it would have been so much easier to go to like Lowe's or something and buy a whole bunch of brand new wood and bring it back. But it just, it just was so sad to see all these abandoned pallets there, like getting rotten in the rain, no one caring about them and just the, like perfectly good wood being trash, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I mean, we're, we're those people though. We pick up 
garbage and use it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I and it is like as you said, it tends it tends to be more difficult. It's more time consuming, more labor intensive, often to reuse something. But the payoff is absolutely worth it. It totally, it totally is. You know, I'm laughing thinking about a few nights ago. We have this, it's sort of like a dry sink that uh, Dustin found in a garbage pile in Philly and we cleaned it up and the door wasn't staying closed on it. And he's like, when I bought it, it, the door closed. And I was like, dear, you've never bought that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) From a garbage pile. Um, you know, another thing I think that is like really important to think about when we talk about upcycling, about sewing smart, about repurposing is just thinking about all of the resources and time and labor that go into these things that have now become trash that really they're not ready to be trash. Yes, that's a huge part of it. Most of the designs that we have, I would say 75% or so of Flexbinet designs begin with a button up shirt that I get secondhand. When I think about a button up shirt and all the pieces that are in that pattern and the time it took to construct that in the first place. So with a button up shirt, you have a back, you have two fronts, a yoke, two plackets, um, inset sleeves, sleeve cuffs, all those buttonholes, you know, it's so many, it's so much time. And the idea that that could be worn for just a year or less or or even for a few years, but then be donated because it has a coffee stain or an ink stain or is missing a button. These are the things that I specifically look for when I'm sourcing the garments that we begin with for upcycling. Um, They're the things that are least likely to be purchased in the condition they're currently in. And, but they're still good. There's still so much value there. But I also understand that someone might not want to buy a shirt that has a stain on it. Um, But Mm -hmm. I can cover that stain up and then someone will enjoy it again. <laughs> I mean, there are so many button-up shirts in the men's section at any thrift store. It's kind of wild. I think I would love to see someone next figure out what to do with all the LuLaRoe leggings because that's the other mm. thing. Like out here where I live in Lancaster County, the thrift stores have racks and racks and racks that are just all that LuLaRoe clothing, like, you know, the, like the novelty print, like stretchy fabric. I don't know what someone's going to make out of that, but that should be like, that person should get like a grant from the UN or something to to reuse all of that stuff. Yes. There's so much of it. I bet those would make great rugs. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good idea. They would be very colorful and interesting and they would probably last forever because that fabric is plastic. Like it is (laughs) going to last forever. Sometimes I'll see a cute dress that I'm like, oh, it's like a polyester dress from the 60s or the 70s and I pull it out. It's, it's got that thick, that super thick plastic, like thick polyester of the 60s and 70s. And then it's a LuLaRoe garment. I'm like, what? Because they make dresses mm. too. Anyway, I digress. How did you kind of happen into button-ups being your, your starting point? I love shirt dresses and house dresses. Um, <laughs> and so I've always mm-hmm. loved vintage shopping and the items I was most drawn to were those, say, mid-century, like 50s, 60s house dresses that would have the big pockets and the buttons up the front, sometimes mm-hmm. a collar. Um, they, they, To me, that's just the perfect garment. So <laughs> I wanted more of them, and I wanted more people to have them. And when I looked at those button-up shirts, I saw the potential there. So I 
you know, obviously I'm a creepy internet stalker. So before we even had our first conversation, <laughs> I was creeping around on the Fluxbene website really hard, uh, just thinking about it. And the thing that really struck me that I thought was so cool was your commitment to unisex dressing and unisex clothing and like truly unisex. And when you and I were preparing for the show, we got into a pretty – I mean, we went down a deep rabbit hole talking about like gender <laughs> and clothing and the way it's been and how you want it to be, you know. Um, it's something I think about mm-hmm. a lot, the idea of what fashion as a whole seems to think of as unisex or androgynous is actually always very traditionally masculine. It's like uh, when I think about what would be a truly genderless, comfortable, easy to fit, useful garment, I think of like a smock or like a caftan, you know. But the fashion industry mm-hmm. has said no. Unisex dressing, when we say that's a trend, that means suiting, you know, blazers, uh, maybe on a more from a more casual side, like hoodies, like sweatpants. I one night was sitting in my living room here in Lancaster texting, like totally shit talk texting with my friend Sherry about this really embarrassing, lame unisex collection that Pac Sun put out that was just like hoodies and t-shirts. And I was like, aren't hoodies and t-shirts unisex by virtue of existing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like why, what is groundbreaking yeah. about this of seeing a woman wearing a larger top? You know, how is that groundbreaking or really changing our opinions on gender, especially if she's wearing like an oversized hoodie and then like nothing on the bottom half of her body but underwear? Like that's that's not changing anything. Um, but mm-hmm. you and I got into a long talk about how the industry – really genderizes shopping from moment one. And it started all these wheels sort of turning in my mind, like thinking about, you know, if you walk into a department store, which feels, when was the last time you went to a department store? (laughs) Um, Probably 2016. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's been a while. For some reason, whenever I say the phrase department store, what comes to mind is a store that I have literally not been in since high school. And it was like a Pennsylvania chain called Boscos. Bonton. Oh, oh my God. And bon- okay. Bonton is a good one too. And it's especially relevant because that is where I got my COVID vaccine in an abandoned Bonton <laughs> under a Michael Kors display. And I'm going back there on Sunday to get the second one. And it was so weird. I don't know about you, but I growing up thought the Bonton was like very fancy. It oh, was yeah. like I, name brands, you know, and definitely not where my family shopped, you know, mm-hmm. like it was like where girls went to get like guests, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but Bonton is a great example too. So you're in a department store, you know, and like the men's is like so far away from the women's geographically. But also when you start to look at the way it's like broken up and displayed, you start to see a lot of patterns like department stores – I mean, this is why department stores are – you haven't been in one since 2016 and I got a vaccination in an abandoned one. It's because the department stores more than anything are like really adverse to change. And so they still have all those dumb departments for women that are totally based on their age and nothing else. You know, like juniors, missies, there'll be something else for even older women. You know, it's like 
they assume that what makes your what drives your taste and des- like what you're desiring to wear is your age, nothing else. You know, mm-hmm. it couldn't be like your aesthetic or what you're into or who you are as a person. Anyway, I was telling you how I, you know I'd always worked in women's buying for women's, and I started to work for a brand that was really trying hard. I mean, ostensibly we were saying we were trying to be unisex, but what we were really trying to do is make menswear that fit a cis woman's body, you know, like smaller men's clothes basically, right? And so I would go to trade shows for both women's clothing and men's clothing. And that was when I started to see how different it was to talk to the sales reps and the other designers who worked in the menswear industry, which had been pretty foreign to me at that point. And it's just so different because the idea out there is that women – only care about trendiness, which I mean, not, I think that's a really broad assumption, but you, when you think about like how clothes are sold to us by like the media or even like social media, it is always about like this thing you need right now mm-hmm. and like what all the cool girls are wearing, you know, like that, that's the kind of like listicle you would find on BuzzFeed. Yeah. And, So the idea, the assumption or the belief is that women only care about trendiness. They don't care about quality and they don't care about brands. And to be fair, I mean, that does seem like that is how fast fashion has kind of blown up. You know, it was really fueled by women buying into trends, not caring about quality and wanting just lots of clothes. Conversely, Mm -hmm. for men, it's all about brand loyalty, like allegedly and i i feel so old timey even breaking shopping into men or women but this is this is how the industry views it even today men don't want to be trendy supposedly men don't uh, subscribe to fashion trends that's not true either men just want to find a brand that they like find a thing from that brand that they like and buy it over and over again so there's not a lot of newness each year in from like a different brand it's like kind of the same stuff over and over again maybe some slight color shifts And quality is really, really important because men are so focused on brands and brand loyalty that you only have one chance to like sort of lure them in to being your customer. And if the product doesn't fit or doesn't last, they'll never come back to you again. So it's just this totally different approach to selling stuff to people. And then, of course, you go into the Bonton and, like, the men's department is a thousand miles away from the women's department. And it's probably smaller. Like, the idea is that men don't need as much clothing. Um, And, you know, the color, the aesthetic, the way it's merchandised. If you go to a men's department, everything is organized by brand, not by, like, Mm -hmm. concept. You know, it's not going to be like, here's all of our animal print stuff. (laughs) <laughs> here's this here's the spring dresses you know it's like not like that it's just like here's pants here's shirts you know it's practically displayed by color <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then we started talking about how this belief that women just like don't really care about the actual clothes they just care about the trendiness reflects itself in really stupid ways like pockets <laughs> or lack thereof <laughs> Yeah, minuscule pockets um, or no pockets at all. And this, what you described, the differences in how clothes are marketed to men and women is very apparent in the thrift store when you go from men's button-up shirts to women's button-up shirts. The quality of the fabric, the stitching, 
the seam configuration, um, every single element. You can tell that the men's garments are made more durable and more thought is put into it being a functional garment rather than just something temporary or disposable, you know? Um, and so that's one of the reasons that, another reason that we went with men's button-up shirts for Flex Bene is that I know then that the pieces we're making are going to last longer. Doesn't that make you so angry that, I mean, thinking like as you're talking, (laughs) I was picturing the kinds of button-ups I've encountered as a woman and they're terrible. Yeah. And you would think, I mean, you know, I'm sure the argument there is like, well, men often wear the same button-up shirts over and over and over again, but. Well, that's what I do. So. (laughs) Well, exactly. And like if you. Just because you are buying a women's button-up shirt doesn't mean you're not wearing that shirt over and over again, especially if it's for work or something like that. Why does it have to be so garbagey? It always is. The yeah. fit is weird. The darts are weird. It's always like a weird stretchy poplin. It's like too thin. You can see your bra through it. It's It doesn't wash up well. Um there just hasn't been a lot of innovation there even for like women's shirting fabrics because they like, they don't transition the fabrics over from the men's collection. They just are like, this will be fine. Just use that. <laughs> She's not going to wear it for that long. Yeah. I was wondering if you knew why the, they button on opposite sides. I have heard a rumor um, <laughs> that it was <laughs> a rumor. Originally, that started because women were being dressed by other people huh. um, so that it was for the ease of, I guess, the ladies' maid yeah. um, who would be dressing you, um, that it was more convenient for them to button. <laughs> that is the opposite way. Wild, because when was the last time anyone had a ladies' oh. maid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a few months for me at yeah, least. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the COVID has really affected my ability to have someone dress me. So I've had to do it all myself. It's been terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if that rumor is true. Have you heard? I haven't. I've asked a lot of different people. No, I mean, one person told me so that you could tell if a garment was men's or women's. And I was like, yeah, but there would be like, a hundred other tells of that before you even right and that. why do we need a tell that would be my yeah. argument and i've heard that rumor as well and why would we need to know if a garment fits you it's for you if you like it and it fits on your body it's for you yeah <laughs> you don't need any other tips or exactly clues. exactly but i mean you know i think back to wearing like my grandpa's button-ups to school in middle school and kids being like why are you wearing men's clothes like, what's wrong uh, with you? And conversely, I'm sure if, like, my brother had gone to school in, like, my grandma's shirt, what would have had a really different vibe because my grandma was really into sequins. But if my father <laughs> had gone to school in my grandma's shirt, you know, he would have been, like, totally made fun of constantly. I mean, I even think of, like, in the early aughts when skinny jeans hadn't fully arrived on the scene, but everybody wanted that skinny jeans look. All of the guys I knew wore women's jeans, but it was like kind of like they were a little embarrassed about it. But who cares? Mm. If you're getting the look that you like and you're comfortable, like you said, just wear it. Yeah. And that's what I mean with Flex Bene when I say gender neutral is these clothes are for everyone. I really, for me, it's as simple as that. The idea that me taking um, 
a shirt that was originally intended for a man or a masculine presenting person that by adding some extra fabric to the bottom of that shirt and putting some pockets on it and maybe, you know, some applique or some indigo dye that somehow that would turn it into a garment that was only suitable for a woman or a female presenting person. It just doesn't make any sense at all. So I think of gender neutral when I use it as an invitation, really. It's if you like this, it's for you. And I've had some interactions with masculine presenting people at markets where, you know, they'll pick up one of the, our frocks, which is, um, could also be called a smock. It's a long, it's a shirt dress essentially. Um, but it doesn't have bust starts. None of them do. Um, so it's a fairly straight fit and there. It's a generous silhouette, you know, kind of a loose fitting garment often, um, I've had people pick those up and say, when I explain then that it's gender neutral, I can sometimes see someone's face change a little, like maybe light up, um, like, oh, I, I can wear this, you know? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> of course, you can wear that. <laughs> it has pockets. You're going to really enjoy it. It fits your body. And um, so I think some people have some items in their closet now that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. That makes me so happy to hear because – I feel that most of the brands out there on the market who are trying to be truly gender-free in terms of dressing are still subscribing to this idea of like it can't be remotely feminine-seeming to be gender-free, but it can totally have a more like, you know, classically masculine vibe Mm -hmm. and that's okay. And so – I, you often see a, a major limit in terms of like colors, prints, you know, silhouettes, like like the whole smock frock idea. I mean, I think that's what we all wear in the future personally. But I know that some people would look at that and say that's a dress. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love that people would say like, wow, I'm going to go wear this frock. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> It makes me very happy too. And I, what you're saying about the kind of gender neutral styles so often having a masculine feel to them, that is so deeply rooted in the patriarchy, right? It's, you know, we say, Mm -hmm. and it's true that the patriarchy hurts everyone. Well, here's one way that it's hurting masculine presenting people that they're clothing options are strictly, very strictly limited more than female presenting people's are. And significantly less comfortable because once you've worn anything dress-like, there's no going back. Mm -hmm. It's so comfortable. Yeah. (laughs) You'll never wear pants again. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's my secret goal. No one ever wearing pants again. (laughs) No one ever wearing pants again. I'm telling you, when we look at representations of of like future dressing and ostensibly genderless dressing of the future, it's always pants-focused. It's always a lot of jumpsuits, which – Let's be really honest with ourselves. Jumpsuits are not that practical because every time you use the bathroom, you have to practically get undressed. And I refuse to accept a future in which we're all wearing jumpsuits because it's just going to slow down productivity, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's already hard enough for so many brands and designers to, you know, really work out all of the challenges of fit, right? Like fit is so hard because all bodies are different. They come in so many different formats, if you will. And then to say like, okay, well, not only am I going to try to dress all, you know, 
feminine presenting people. I'm going to try to dress everyone. You're dealing with even more varieties of bodies, of heights, of widths, of shoulders, of butts, all those things. How do you do it? It um, definitely does present some challenges. Um, I was honestly, I was very intimidated by making clothing to sell um, for a long time for this reason. Um, all the issues, potential issues with fitting. And the way I've gotten around that, what our design process is like, is um, just very slow and intentional. And we really <laughs> spend a lot of time on each element. So recently developed a new frock design. And it's something that more than some of our other styles, I think has a kind of would be considered a traditional feminine silhouette. Um, but I wasn't, I'm not willing to say, well, only a more feminine body can wear this. So I spent a full week making that armhole situation something that will work for um, anyone whose body fits in the garment. Shoulders are one of the things that that vary the most when you're making something for everyone, Um, shoulder width. And um, so, yeah, it's intentional and deliberate. And there's also an element of flex bene because we are able to produce so few. Our, we're maxed out currently at um, about 24 to 30 pieces each month, and each one is one of a kind. Um, from the very beginning, there's been a sense that each piece is intended for someone. I don't want to get like too woo-woo about this, but um, <laughs> <laughs> because they're one of a kind, Um, And each one starts as a garment that already has a size of its own. And then I'm changing that size by either adding fabric or removing some from it, um, sometimes doing both of those. It's difficult to control what it's going to end up at the end. And it just seems like they end up the way they're supposed to. (laughs) So that then the person comes along who's looking for that piece and it fits them and that's that's the way it seems to be working. That's great. It's, it's not the most scientific. <laughs> well, I also think, I mean, you know, something I talk about a lot, I think we all think about a lot now, is like the reality is the more stuff you make and sell, like on a larger and larger scale, the harder it actually is to dress more people and dress them well because, you know, suddenly you have to kind of be more – more broad reaching, you kind of have to say, I'm only going to make these four different sizes and I'm going to make a lot of them, you know, because you're manufacturing in a different way. But by keeping it on a small scale, you can continue to sort of finesse it and adjust to the customer and just the customer walks away having a better experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I feel like a lot of the clothing that you can buy from most, like most major retailers at this point unless you're really, really lucky in some way, uh, it never really fits anyone perfectly. And so we've gotten accustomed to kind of being like, oh, I'll make it work. I'll put a belt on with it or I'll wear a shirt over the top of it. Or I mean, I I have so many weird clo- clothes in my closet. Like that dress can only be worn with a vest because the back is too big and I need to cover it up or like just all of these like apologies and like accommodations you make for your clothes just because they don't fit. Uh, I think the idea of someone constantly improving that to reach their customers is, I mean, that's the ideal situation. So 
how did you start Flux Benny? Let's like, what's the journey there? Sure. So I, um, in 2000, well, my degree's in sociology. That was 2010. I finished school. In 2013, I got a job with a costume production company in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And that was really wild. And I worked there for less than a year, but it was um, very fast paced. And I was the only person in the sewing department. So it was very um, self, self-regulating, self I guess, self-run, self-motivated um, there. And so after getting through a Halloween season, I felt like, wow, I love this. I just fell in love. It was pure love. And I said, well, if I can do this for someone else, maybe I can do it for myself. And so I started taking on custom sewing orders, which picked up steam really quickly. So that was 2013 into um, 2014. And um, I had a policy then for a few years that I would say yes to any sewing project that came my way. Oh, wow. It was intense. Yeah. Um, The one one caveat I had was no wedding dresses, but I even broke that a few times. So (laughs) (laughs) um, through the process of that, I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned was the projects that I liked and the ones I didn't like. And the ones that always were the most exciting to me were upcycles. Um, one that comes to mind was a woman came who's now a dear friend of mine. She had two dresses. She had an event coming up and one dress fit on the top, one dress fit on the bottom. So I cut them both and sewed the two that fit together. And then she had a dress. And that was so exciting to me because then she didn't have to buy a dress. And I felt like we were cheating the system, you know, like we had come together. We were this like team and we won. So I I just knew I wanted more of that. And those projects were um, kind of few and far between. There just weren't as many as I would like. And Finally, in 2017, I said, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to upcycle some things and see how it goes. And um, people just really responded well right away. I started taking them to markets and then had the incredible luck to open a shop, a brick and mortar shop in 2018 with two partners who were both um, fashion designers and um, clothing makers. Um, so the three of us opened here in Pittsburgh and sold our lines through the store. It was called Make and Matter. And that was open until um, last summer or last spring, really. Um, we closed the shop during early days of COVID with the shutdowns and weren't able to reopen. And so since then, we have all of us kind of redirected our energy toward our online shops how has the pandemic been for you? It has. Um, it's been wild. Um, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about accurate. <laughs> it feels like it's been much, much more than one year. But I, I had had um, another job. I had an events-based catering job um, all through Flex Benet. And I loved, loved that job. Um, and it disappeared. The hotel where I'd been working closed and is not reopening. Um, and that happened right around the same time Megan Matter closed and was not reopening. And I also had been oh. teaching sewing as supplemental income and that disappeared. <laughs> and so 2020, um, starting in March, was the first year that I've done Flex Benet full time. And it, that involved a lot of readjusting and reconfiguring um, how I think about the business.
business and my pricing and yeah, a lot of things. Um, but it feels really good right now. I did um, a price increase earlier this year that I was extremely nervous about, but um, it was necessary in order for the business to be sustainable for me. I realized I'd been very focused on making the business sustainable um, for the environment and <laughs> um, in every other way <laughs> except for myself. And, you know, had the pandemic not happened, yep. if I hadn't lost all other uh, modes of supplemental income, I'm not sure when I would have come to that realization. So there's a line, like a bright lining there. I mean, I think that's amazing. And I think I know that there are a lot of people who are going to hear you say that and they're going to be like, yep, yep, I'm doing the same thing. Like I'm fretting so much about, you know, being sustainable in terms of the planet, pleasing my customers, you know, keeping this going, building my business. But what are you paying yourself? You know, so it is kind of good that the pandemic forced you to evaluate that, you know, in a weird way. Yeah, yeah it is. I um, That's been sort of a hobby of mine over the past year is finding all the silver linings of the. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. So we can add that to the list. <laughs> it must be, I mean, it's got to be just so challenging to put a price to your work. Like you can you know, you can get out a spreadsheet, you can start a spreadsheet and start dissecting like the amount of fabric that went into it, you know, all the other trims and materials. You could even say it's, it took four hours of actual sewing and that, you know, if I paid myself $20 an hour, that's $80 right there. That's hard enough for people to do. But then to really think about, it's not just the physical labor that you put into this garment. Like you created the idea, you thought it through, you tried different things. I mean, you invented this thing, you know, <laughs> how, how do you even, I, I can't even imagine the process of pricing that, to be honest. It is, um, it's a real thing and it can be, um, it can get kind of emotional and involve um, considerations of self-worth and also my own background. So I, I come from a background of limited means. I grew up without, you know, a lot of extra money or clothes. And um, because of that, I think early on my pricing, so I started out pricing things for myself, essentially. So what could I afford? Um, but that didn't work because I couldn't afford anything <laughs> when I was starting out. Right, um, right. So I kind of evolved from that into, well, okay, what do I need? So I kind of started figuring out, here's what my monthly expenses are. Here's what I can produce in a month. So let's make these numbers match up. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I'd been operating for a couple of years um, until 2020. As a person who's worked in the industry and, you know, helps people figure this stuff out all the time still, I always say, like, just take yourself out of it and make the numbers work on paper but that can be really hard because there's also this like kind of like capitalist woo-woo part of it where you also have to say, what's the value of this in comparison to other things that are out there? And that I feel like is maybe where if you are really self-doubting, if you have a lot of imposter syndrome, you might think that it's not as valuable as other things out there and kind of 
you know, shortchange yourself in terms of what you're charging. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that happens. And um, so, yeah, once I was once I separated it from my personal circumstances, um, which you know, there is privilege involved with that too, which is something I came to realize that, I, you know, as a childless person who is um, pretty healthy, I my bills are less than some other people's who may also be makers. And should my work be priced less because of that? Like, no, absolutely not. Then you're potentially mm-hmm. undercutting another artist if you're charging something that isn't fair. So mm-hmm. now, starting in 2021, um, the pricing is probably the most scientific part of the business. <laughs> I really have it <laughs> kind of down to a bit of a science that involves the the time and the materials. Um, and there is still some finger crossing, you know, like at the end of each month for sure. And I don't know if that'll ever go away. I mean, I doubt it. I doubt it. I think even for our big corporations that are like printing their own money, <laughs> there's still a lot of that involved. And I think, I think it is, man, the point you make that like you can't undersell the other people out there just because you don't need as much money to survive is so important. You know, I just released an episode today about competition and pricing and how like larger companies that can get away with lower costs like Walmart, you know, Walmart has been able to have the cheapest stuff out there because they buy so much of it, they can name their price. And so what happens is they can sell stuff for so much cheaper than anyone else that people just go to Walmart anyway and buy it, even if they know it's not the best, even if they don't love Walmart. They're like, well, it's the cheapest. And that drives other businesses like small businesses that don't have the privilege of selling stuff for half of its actual value. Yeah. And that drives them out of business. And I think we can see that like on a big level. Like if you talk about Walmart or Amazon, everybody's like, yeah, nodding their head in agreement. But then I'm like, okay, well, what if you went to a maker's fair I guarantee you're going to see prices across the spectrum. And the advice I always give people is you don't want to be the cheapest person. You don't. It's like, first off, it's probably because you're cutting yourself short, but it's also, it's just bad for all the other sellers out there. Now, if you're making crappy stuff, don't sell it for a lot of money. But the assumption is that you're probably not, you know? (laughs) Um, But when you don't, charge a fair price for it, you're really just implying that the stuff you make is crappy. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of truth to that. And I've been, since the increase, just so um, humbled and so grateful that it seems to have, as in terms of my customer base, it I wouldn't say it went unnoticed, but um, there certainly hasn't been anything that be con- considered like um, negative feedback. It seems that the value was already recognized and I was the one who had to catch up with it. That's great. It would have been such a bummer if you were like, yeah, and then everybody was mad at me and yeah. said mean things to me. <laughs> yeah. But I was ready for that. Even yeah. It, like I, I wanted and needed to know. That's what this year is about is, you know, if it's not sustainable, I need to know now so I can get another plan going. I mean, I think that's great. That's This is a good time for that in a weird way, right? Even though you're also like more financially vulnerable this year. But it can <laughs> be a good time to explore that. I mean, I think I think that like if I can give advice to makers out there, if I can, there's any advice I can give, it's like 
you probably have room to increase your prices and pay yourself fairly because most likely the only kinds of brands, retailers, companies, whatever, that are going to get really negative feedback when they raise their prices are the people who are already out there making kind of crappy stuff to begin with. Like if Forever 21 doubled their prices on everything, there would be outrage rightfully so, you know, as it is right now. Like if they had a a, a demonstrable case that they'd actually really improve the quality and the ethics. I mean, I would love that for Forever 21. Please, please do that. But, you know, that's probably not what the case would be. And so I think you're always afraid that someone's going to say something. And listen, I have seen various sellers from our community getting weird feedback from people like, why is that $100? That's not fair. But like, it is fair, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good to constantly break that down for people who question otherwise, because as I say a lot on the pod, like we don't understand the cost of anything anymore. Oh, right. Yeah. We have been so removed from production of all kinds. <laughs> We're, we've been living in this sort of fantasy zone where we don't see where things are made or how they're made. And then we also don't have to see where they go when we're done with them. Um, so yeah, the, the cost of things in a lot of ways has been totally out of our purview for a long time now. And I think that there's this idea that anything you buy, you're not going to keep it for very long. So what's the real value in it in the first place? And you sort of change your mindset and you say, this is something I'm going to have for years and years, and it's going to be like one of my favorite things. I'm going to get so much wear out of it. Suddenly a higher price makes sense. Like I'm, I'm that person who's like, all right, well, if I wore it a hundred times, that's $2 a wear. You know, if I wear it a thousand times, you know, it's 50 cents or whatever, you know? Yes. Right. (laughs) I love that. But if you go into like Forever 21 and you see tank tops that are $1.90, your brain immediately is like, oh, I'm probably only going to get to wear that a couple of times. And so then thinking like you might get to wear that twice, we're looking at a dollar a wear there approximately. Well, that's not a good deal, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so just really starting to think about like that commitment and what that's worth. And I'm always that person who's like, okay, I'm going to sign up for the unlimited yoga plan, but like I have to go at least 20 times. So it's only $5 a class. <laughs> and if I go less than that, then it's too expensive. You know, like I'm that person, but that's a good way for some people to look at it. You know, if that's, if you're, if you are a person who really likes to do some division, you know, hot division here and there, um, maybe some multiplication, this, that's a good way to figure out if something is a good value for you or not. Yeah, I agree. I think the more you can wear something, um, the better the value for sure. And I also, I understand where people are coming from, you know, as someone who's lived with limited means for a long time, that sustainable fashion is an investment. It, um, we got used to fast fashion and those prices. So it can be a kind of a shock sometimes. Um, and so one of the things that I'm offering with Flex Bene to help sort of soften that is sewing patterns mm-hmm. for all of our designs with the hope that knowing that I'm someone who's probably more likely, definitely more likely to make something myself, thinking there's definitely a lot of other people out there too <laughs> who feel that way. So that there's another option. Um, and then upcycling is that too. When I think of someone who has an, a kind of a sustainable wardrobe today, I think of it as a combination of all these different avenues. So there'll be some 
ethical clothing brands that you invested in, in your closet, there'll be some things from the thrift store, some really great vintage finds. There'll be some things in your closet from before you started ethically shopping. And Mm -hmm. then there'll be some things that you've upcycled and it, you know, it doesn't need to be all one of those things. I love that. I think there, you know, there's this tendency, especially, you know, for Americans, I'm one of them. You kind of want this immediate miraculous transformation. And so you're like, okay, now I'm going to start being sustainable and ethical. Today is like the first day of this new way of life for me. And the first impulse is to be like, okay, I'm going to go get rid of all the fast fashion from my closet, donate that to the Goodwill and start with a blank slate. Like there was, for years, there was this trend of like the capsule wardrobe where you would get all rid of all of your clothes except for like 10 or 20 Mm. things. And what that was really just doing, it was like forcing unsustainable change, I feel like, because it was like all at once I'm changing my whole life. I'm turning it upside down. All these things that are perfectly wearable, I'm passing on, which is not to say that I think people should own 100 clothes right? But if you do right now, keep wearing them, you know? Yeah. Unless you're like, I actually, I bought that a few years ago and I haven't even worn it once or I worn it once and I hated it, then fine, you know, donate it, sell it, give it to a friend. But I think this idea that we need to just like go purge everything and start a refresh is it's such, it's like an intrinsically American approach to change. And the most sustainable thing you can do is keep wearing the stuff you already have and build off of that. Yes, for sure. Yeah, we tend to appreciate instant gratification. Yeah. I think we're really this this whole idea is like a slow build. It is. It it's, is. Because even secondhand is, you know, the reality is that for the most part, secondhand shopping is also delayed gratification. If I decide today I really need – a black dress with red flowers. I can't get it out of my head. And I go look all across the internet and all the thrift stores. There, you know what? Odds are pretty high. I'm not going to find exactly what I was looking for and I'm going to have to wait. But I, I promise it always comes to you eventually. It's just like one of those things. Yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when it does, it's like you love it 10 times as much as you would have if you found it on the first day you were searching. Yeah, 100%. So for your sewing patterns, which I think is so cool because, you know, a lot of sewing patterns right out there right now really rely on you, you know, getting the pattern, going to Joanne, buying the brand new fabric. Are these built around the idea of repurposing existing materials? They are, yeah. So um, we're releasing our first pattern at the end of April. It's for the Flughafen top, which is a secondhand button-up shirt that is cropped and has large chest pockets added on and then cuffed short sleeves. Um, that'll be mm-hmm. the first one because that was our first style with Flex Bene. Um, but I, I hope to release patterns for all of our styles or all the ones people are interested in making themselves at least. Um, and yeah, so each one will begin with a secondhand garment and includes pattern pieces that you need for the fabric you're adding to your garment. Um, which sometimes is fabric from the garment itself. So for instance, with the Flughafen, you make the cuffs out of the sleeves that you're cutting off and you make the pockets out of the bottom of the shirt that you're cutting off. And then you add, I put it in that pattern, you need about a quarter of a yard additional fabric, but that doesn't have to be yardage. Um, It can be another shirt that you have, or it could be anything, you know, old curtains. Um, If it is yardage though, 
supporting your local fabric store is always a great idea. Totally. They're going to have much better stuff than Joanne. I had to go to Joanne a month or two ago for an emergency because all the fabric stores out here are closed on Sundays and most of Saturday because, you know, this is like a very religious area that I live in. And I was actually really depressed by the fabric at Joanne. Like I walked down every aisle and got really depressed. It was just not, it was just not stuff you want to live with forever. And if you're going to go to all that effort to sew, to make a thing, you want to start Mm -hmm. off on the right foot, you know, because you're going to have it for a long time. You should have it for a long time because you made it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The fabric you're beginning with is one of the most important parts. So when are these patterns going to be available? So the Flughafen will be available in PDF form to download from our website at the end of April. Cool. And I'm hoping to do um, a new pattern every quarter after that. So hopefully three more before the end of 2021. That is so cool. Was it hard to make a pattern? Like, were you, I mean, it sounds it sounds so intimidating to me as a person who has no idea where to begin and who even gets intimidated by cutting out an existing pattern. <laughs> I'm so anxious. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. Thanks for asking. <laughs> it was. I was so intimidated. I had to learn to use Illustrator for this. I had no experience previously, <laughs> wow. and um, it, I'm still learning. I don't know if that will ever, if I'll ever say like, oh, I know it now, you know, um, still learning, but have gotten to the point that I'm really enjoying using it for this purpose. Um, I think what is a unique challenge of the upcycling sewing patterns is the instructions. Mm-hmm. Um, the instruction, it's, it's much more wordy, I would say, than a traditional sewing pattern where you're making something from scratch. Because it's at times it's concepts that even people who have been sewing for a while may not be familiar with. So I think there's um, a lot of people, and this is very understandable, in the sewing world who still shy away from things like alterations. Mm-hmm. Um, one, because I think sometimes it just seems boring. And others, because I think it can be a bit intimidating. But with the upcycling patterns, that really is a part of it. So I'm kind of introducing alteration techniques and terminology with using a pattern. Um, And then also some fabric piecing. So some kind of light quilting techniques too. Wow. That's intense. (laughs) I'm excited about it. I think this is so cool (laughs) because, you know, there are people who make sort of like videos, DIY stuff about upcycling, repurposing, but a pattern is like some really serious business. Yeah, I think it will help. I think it'll make it um, more accessible to beginners. That's my hope. Mm-hmm. I had um, seven pattern testers for the Flughafen pattern, and the feedback from all of them was really great. And I want to say three of the seven were people who had never sewn a garment from a pattern before. And wow. all three of them successfully made it and said that they had a great time. And so that was... That's what I needed to hear. (laughs) I'm like, okay, this is going to (laughs) work. Yeah, because it's like one thing to make a pattern just to use for yourself, but it's so quite another thing to make a pattern that works, that is understandable for someone else. You know, like writing instructions. I remember having to do weird like group projects like that in school where you would have to 
explain to someone how to do something. And of course, it would always be an epic fail because you left out all kinds of things because you weren't seeing it from their perspective. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that that is such an amazing feat. So outside of sewing patterns, what are ways that people who are listening can upcycle on their own? Oh, yeah. So I think if you're someone who doesn't sew, there are still plenty of things you can do if you have a pair of scissors to items in your closet. And um, (laughs) you, so knits, t-shirt knits are extremely forgiving. You and I talked about a book that used to exist called um, Generation T. Remember that? (laughs) (laughs) I have have it here. I found it thrifting a while ago and I don't know why I bought it. I, cause I was like, I already know how to cut up a t-shirt, but at some point this will be useful. And it sort of made me laugh because, you know, I feel like in the aughts, which is when that book was published, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was like the late aughts. Probably mm-hmm. we were all cutting up our t-shirts all the time, but it's really scary if you don't normally just cut up your clothes. It is. It is. Yeah. I've had people tell me one of the testers actually, her feedback after making the flu coffin was that she had thought of clothing as um, an item, you know, it was like a static thing. And that she realized through the process of upcycling mm-hmm. that each garment, any item, really anything is really just in a journey. It's on a journey of its own and you can take part in that journey by making it something else. So there is this fear if you consider yourself to like not be a sewing professional or something that you're going to ruin something. But if you have something that you already don't like, it's essentially ruined now and you can make it better, potentially. Maybe you'll mess it up and you won't be able to wear it and no one else will ever be able to wear it. But even if that happens, I'm sure you're going to learn something. And really the stakes are so low if this is something that you already own and you're not going to wear it the way it is. You're not happy with it. you know. So I say get your scissors and take some chances get a little wild even and just make some mistakes. <laughs> but use it good scissors because I have totally ruined things by being like, oh, here's this pair of scissors that I use to cut like everything in our house all the time. Like plants, you know, like yeah. wire, cardboard, whatever. <laughs> now I'm going to cut this t-shirt and it gets all weird and choppy and strange because they weren't sharp enough. So use sharp scissors, not just like the scissors you used to cut, you know, like tags off of clothes and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah, get a nice pair of fabric scissors and then yes. turn your pants into shorts and turn your sweaters into vests and cut your hemlines. Cut the hemline of anything and you can just leave it raw. No one cares. If no you do want to sew it, you can hand sew it. And you know what? Then you have a couture hem, even if you don't know how to hand sew. Because it's just going to look cute. Like these types of details, hand sewing and, um, you know, we know that visible mending is cool. It looks really great. Well, visible alterations also can look really great. You don't need to – I think there's an idea that if you alter something, it needs to look like it came that way from the factory. Um, And that's just absolutely not true. Um, People are more interested in something that has a bit of a hand touch. Oh, for sure. For sure. One, it's like a badge of saying, look how I made this thing perfect for me. And that's really impressive. It's unique to you. And I think because I've gotten into my head with alterations in that same way where like any hem I make or anything else I do has to look brand new exactly as if it came that way. And you know what? 
it's probably not going to happen unless this is what you do for a living. And that's okay. Yeah, it's even better. It's just yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely been so intimidated that I'm like, never mind. I'll just let these pants drag on the floor instead. <laughs> and like, what? No. <laughs> there are items that you can find thrifting or in your closet. They're going to be more amenable to upcycling than others. Sure. Yeah. So one thing to consider is the type of fabric. If you are just cutting something and you don't plan to hem it, um, is it something, how is it going to fray when it's washed? Um, so there's some like thin fabric chiffon or something like that um, that will fray a lot. Some knits that are loose, um, like a loose knit sweater, that um, could just completely come unraveled if it's cut. Um, but I've seen that look really cool too. So just something to consider is the type of fabric. Um, if you're mm -hmm. going to go into a labor-intensive upcycling project, I recommend starting with an item that you really, really like. Um, because if you don't like the fabric of it, when you start, you're not going to like the finished product. Um, you can change the color of the fabric mm. fairly easy with dyeing. Um, most fabrics can be over dyed. Um, and that's a really good way to upcycle too. Even you can do that without cutting. You can just dye something and probably like it again. And so do you have any recommendations there on dye? Because I know there are a lot of people who try it once, they go to the store, they get some writ, they throw it in, it comes out like totally weird. I remember the first time I dyed clothes, I, you know, I thought writ was the only brand mm -hmm. of dye. I was dyeing a bunch of stuff black and it came out brown, which was Ooh, so yeah disheartening. Uh, do you have any brands out there that you recommend? Sure. Yeah. I use Procyon MX dyes, which I get from Dharma Trading Co. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. I work all in natural fibers. And I use those with um, soda ash and salt, which is just table salt. And um, there's uh, some instructions all over the place online. They're fairly easy to use and they're non-toxic. And you can buy the dye in, in pretty small quantities, so it's it's affordable too. I found that I haven't used RIT very much, um, but I think the the Procyon dyes are a bit more reliable. I will say that black, though, is one of the most difficult colors to achieve. Um, I agree. I agree. I uh, I think that Procyon is better for black, though, too. I will say that. I've had a lot better experience there. Um it's just a hard one because a lot of brands either give you like really just like a navy or a brown and sometimes it takes a couple tries. Black clothes are hard to create. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other <laughs> advice I have when dying, this is probably the most important advice I have, is to embrace the weird as much as you possibly can to not have strong <laughs> yes. expectations and just say – it's an experiment. I'm doing this thing. And if you don't like how it turns out the first time, then try dyeing it again. And if you don't like that, put some bleach on it. You know, like it's a journey. So you're on that journey with the garment and the dye and see where it takes you. Agreed. Agreed. Break free of that idea that it's got to look like it was mass produced because that's where you end up being disappointed. Yeah. And it's just, honestly, it's so much cooler and unique when it looks like you did it yourself. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Then it becomes a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guarantee people are going to be like, whoa, how did you dye that? What did you use? What made you do that? Like this is this is like good PR for the world of doing stuff on your own, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you like spread the idea. You inspire others. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is, I want everyone to be doing this. I hope that everyone who hears this finds something in their closet they haven't worn in a few months or 10 years and does something really wild to it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I want to see it. I, I think we all have something hidden in our closets that we're like, I don't know. It was just never quite right. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think even the idea of saying like, this is a dress, turn it into a skirt or a top. Like that's something that we often don't think of either. Mm-hmm. We're just like, if it's a dress, it has to stay a dress. You, know, yeah. you can turn a skirt into a dress. I've actually done that too. Uh, so there's a lot of <laughs> don't be don't be reined in by the parameters as they exist right now. Yes, exactly. It, use your imagination, and the more you do, it's a muscle like anything else. You'll start to when you look at items, you'll automatically see the potential in them. You'll see all the different elements that it's made up of instead of just the static item that it currently is. So when you're looking for things that you can upcycle, or when like say you're going through your closet and you are making your little piles, like things to donate, things to take to the clothing swap, things you want to give to friends and what you want to keep. When you look at that donate pile, or even if you have um, a trash pile, like maybe there's a pile of things that you don't think are nice enough to even be donated. What are the elements of those items? Can you Mm -hmm. take off the pockets and keep those and maybe sew those onto something else? Because you could always use more pockets. Can you use that zipper or those buttons? Can you use the collar on something? You know, there's start just being imaginative. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. See it as more than what it is right now. You also brought up a really good point about not going to the store, finding something big and making it small. Yes. Please don't do that. Um, That is – people – you may have seen already, I hope – a lot of people have seen the advice to not do that. But there was for a while an upcycling thing that people were doing where it was a sort of like, look, I found this big item. Uh, I made it small. Now it fits me. Um, And that is harmful in a number of ways. But on like the very most basic level, there's not very much plus size clothing at the thrift store. There's a ton of clothing. We all know that, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's, there's not enough plus size clothing. So leave that for people who need it. Um, if you are a plus, if you wear a plus size, by all means, you know, yeah, um, buy but it. <laughs> if not, then I buy something much closer to your size. And I understand wanting that loose fit. I personally appreciate that a lot. So if you're able, get something that's closer to your size and add fabric to it to make it a loose-fitting garment. So that's something that the patterns that we're creating um, include that option for people to add, like, side panels to increase volume if you want, like, a boxier loose fit. That's amazing. Yeah. I I also just want to say, like, buying a larger size garment and shrinking it down to fit you is so wasteful, too. I mean – what are you going to do with all that extra fabric? It's just so silly. Um, although I have seen people doing weird like – and then I took the extra fabric and I made a headscarf and a purse and a collar. And I'm like, no, no, you just shouldn't have done that in the first place. Like seriously, every store – I, every thrift store I, I go to, the plus size, the extended size of clothing section is like in the best case scenario, a quarter of the size of the rest of the clothing. At best, it's sometimes it's like half of a rack, right? Yeah, I think that's probably 
in a lot of ways, it's the result of there being not enough plus size clothing in the clothing market to begin with. Totally. Um, oh, so absolutely. it's reflected in the thrift store. Uh, yeah. I'm glad that that's over or I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any final advice, thoughts, parting words for the listeners? As I think about sustainable sustainability in clothing right now, I just want to stress that we all just can do our best. No one can mm-hmm. do it perfectly. And we're all just, we all just need to do our best. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that is the best advice though, because, you know, we all want to do the best, most perfect job, but unfortunately we're not really given the, I mean, this isn't the right word, but it's the best word I can think of the tools to do that right now. It is hard. It is. Yeah. To do it perfectly because things might be expensive. They might not even exist in your size. They might not exist at all. Um, meanwhile, what is available to us is often the complete opposite of sustainable. And it's just kind of where we are right now. You know, do your best, continue to educate all the people around you. The more people that are asking for it and demanding better, the more likely it is to get there. Yeah, agreed. And have fun with it. Our clothes should be as fun as possible. Agreed. Getting dressed should still be fun. We're not calling for us all to wear. Although I did say that I think that smocks are the future. Uh, they'll be really, they'll be really stylish smocks. They're going to be the cutest <laughs> smocks in the world. The best ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh wait, do you have something else to say? We haven't even seen smocks as cute yet as they're going to get in the future. Oh yeah, they're going to be so good. They're going to be so good. You cancel everything you think a smock is. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. This was so fun. I'm glad, you know, I've been hearing about you forever from all the Pittsburgh people. So it's just so exciting to actually get to talk to you. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for all the work you're doing with the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me, Rebecca. That was so great, wasn't it? You can find her on Instagram at flux.benet and at fluxbenet.com. And don't worry, I'll share those links in the show notes. Go check it out. She's launching a new collection on 430. That's April 30th. If you didn't want to have to count the months on your fingers, I do it all the time. Uh, but that's pretty soon. So definitely go give her a follow, see what she's working on. You don't want to miss the next collection. And also those sewing patterns are coming soon, which is so cool. I can't wait. Rebecca mentioned that she listed Clothes Horse in the pattern info as a resource for learning more about sustainability and the fashion industry. And I'm just so touched by that. Sometimes I'm just like, what am I doing? Does anyone care? And then I hear from one of you and it just makes my day. So thank you for being my community, for giving me your support, and spreading the word about my work. I know I'm not my job, but this job, this is a job that I don't mind being. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, you know what I'm going to say. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. How else do we turn the fashion industry upside down? We need to get more people. We need an army, a really cool secondhand clothing wearing army. (laughs) Let's get it going.
I also just wanted to mention that I just did an interview with Maze Place, which is a St. Louis-based vintage store. They interviewed me for their blog. The post just went live, and I'll share it in the show notes. Go check it out. And don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. We'll be doing our regular Friday night Instagram live Q&A session this Friday, as always, at 8 p.m. Eastern. I can't wait to talk to all of you. Um, This week on Instagram, I'm really focusing on debunking some of the greenwashing stuff that's out there. Uh, So if you have a question about greenwashing, this would be a great time for me to answer it. Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. We've got some good stuff going on there. And if you need a new podcast, which you might, I've been like dropping a lot of podcasts recently and trying to bring on some new ones. Maybe you're in the same place. Check out my other podcast, The Department. Last Sunday, we did a little preview in the Close Horse feed of one of my favorite episodes. And right now, Kim and I are in the midst of a series about online dating. The episode that just came out on Tuesday is about catfishing. So go check that out. Lastly, but never leastly, thank you to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support and really determined hard drive repairs. (laughs) I don't know what I do without you. Bye.